0: Hey, good evening. It's good to see you all. Good to be with you. Uh, If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Just a few announcements that I have for you for the rest of this week. Uh, First is we have classes that we offer here every week, and they're called redemption classes. And they're just another area that we make disciples. We make disciples in our Sunday services and redemption communities as well as in classes. And so the class that's being taught this Wednesday is taught by Pastor Ryan Arneson, and it's called Smashing Idols. It's a class that teaches us how to identify the idols in our life whether they be comfort, whether they be power, human approval, and then to replace them with the good news of Jesus Christ. So again, Ryan will be teaching that class this Wednesday from 6.30 to 8 p.m. You can sign up for that back at the Connect Desk on your way out, or you can go to redemptionaz.com, and you can sign up online. There will be childcare available for that. Um, Also, um, just for the next few weeks, next week we'll come back and we'll finish... um, Habakkuk chapter three, today Jim will teach in Habakkuk chapter two, and then um, after that we get into Holy Week, and in Holy Week we will have Good Friday service, we have one service, that'll so be 6 p.m., and again, Good Friday, one service, 6 p.m., and then we'll have Easter, and we're gonna have three services for Easter, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 1045. Now here's where I'm gonna need your help. Um, 7 a.m. is gonna be a tough sell, um, especially for our crowd, I'm just guessing, um, we need people to show up to the 7 a.m. service so that we can keep the 1045, which is probably going to be the fullest service. And a lot of people who normally don't come to church will probably come at the 1045. And then you would say, well, then why don't I just go to the 9? No, we need you to go to the 7. Here's what you're thinking. Somebody else is going to go. They don't need – no, we need you to go. Um, and there may be a bet between myself and Jason Raber – um, that, that we can get more than 200 people to go to the 7 o'clock service. It's once a year. It's 52 weeks in a year, just once. And I'm not saying that you should participate in this bet or you should choose between which pastor you like better, the one who talks to you majority of the time, loves you, prays for you. Um, I'm not saying that. But you should go to the 7 a.m. service, please. I will get a free lunch out of it, and I will pray for you harder. All right? <laughs> <laughs> so, 9 a.m., um, excuse me, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 10.45. Um, if you have people, you're just like, listen, I'm bringing a lot of people. They can only come to the 10.45. They've never heard the gospel. They're like related to Satan. Go ahead. Fine. You can take them to 10.45. But if that's not the case, then get them to get up earlier. We'll have donuts and food out there for everyone. But there will not be childcare for that for that 7 a.m. service, just the 9 a.m. and 10.45. After that, the week following Easter, we will start our study in Romans. Uh, we'll have materials for you guys. It's going to be a two-year study, which we'll take a break during Advent for the month of December. We'll pick back up again January next year, and then we'll finish Romans uh, and two years, and so that'd be a great journey. We will definitely know the book of Romans after after two years. So looking forward to that. A um, couple more things. Last week Jim came um, and he shared with you all, and Luke shared that um, my sister had a stroke, and, and I know you guys have been praying, and, and just for me to answer the question that keeps coming up: How's your sister doing? Um, two weeks ago, last time I was teaching here, um, I found out that late that night, actually early the next morning, because I was ignoring the phone calls from my sister's house. Um, because my nephews usually call me all the time and they never really want to talk about anything. And so I said I'd call them back later. The next morning when I woke up Monday morning, I got a call from my mom. And she had told me that my sister had a stroke. And, um, you know, that's never, ever good news to hear. And so I left to go be with my family. And I was uh, by myself. My, my wife and kids stayed here. And so I was down in uh, Southern California with my sister. And uh, so she lost all movement in the left side of her, her body. And, um, and she hasn't fully recovered that. She's able to move her fingers, able to move her toes, uh, able to smile with a full smile now. If you guys are familiar with strokes, and, you know, you lose um, parts of uh, the, your muscles. You're not able to use your muscles because there's, there's some, some work that needs to be done for your brain to to move your body. So really hard. It was really hard, and it still is, and she's still recovering. She's got two boys, a sixth grader and an eighth grader, so really, really fun age and um, the dad 's out of the picture, so it 's just my sister she 's a single mom, so my mom has left Mississippi to come be with my sister, and uh, we 're just praying for for God to continue to bring forth healing there. So we do appreciate your prayers for her. Her name is Keisha, so you could be praying for us my big sister she 's thirty five and love her to death and so I appreciate you guys prayers for that uh, on a different note, an exciting note. Um, a few weeks ago, we had our capital campaign in which we began, and we said we wanted to raise $100,000 in a one-time offering. Um, before we did that, we consulted some people who worked with, who work with churches around the country uh, to get some experts to tell us what would be a good number to start with. Um, and the guy that we worked with said, hey, $100,000 for your congregation and your demographics because um, they're younger people and you've never gone through that. That's as, like as, as high as you can go. Um, and then, don't, don't be surprised if you don't get it. And so we were like, okay. Um, but we put prayed, we believed in Jesus, we trusted in the spirit, we, we loved God, and so he was just a consultant, and so we put that number there, and we asked that God would do exceedingly more than we can think, ask, or imagine. So, the money came in, the money kept coming in, and so our final total for that first time giving towards a million dollars, we set the goal for $100,000. Not only did we pass the $100,000, not $110,000, not one hundred and thirty, dollars not one hundred and fifty, dollars but we had $160,633. Yeah. So, safe to say, we were really excited. I mean, like really, really excited. And so, when Jason gave me that number, it was like I passed out. He prayed for me, brought me back, and it was just a lot of just a lot. A lot of fun. And so if this is your first time here and you're going, why the heck are they clapping over money? That's not what we usually do. Uh, we were a part of something that we wanted God to stretch our faith and grow our faith for now and over the next three years as a part of us purchasing this building, renovating this, this property in order that we may use it to bless this city and this community. And so that's what you're hearing is that God himself, we believe, is doing a significant work through Redemption Tempe. And uh, it, it's just an amazing thing. And so we're excited about that. Uh, we'll continue to give you guys updates on how we're doing over the next few years that, and uh, again, really excited, but now I'm going to pray, and then Jim Mullen's going to come, and he's going to lead us through the chapter two of Habakkuk, so would you guys bow your heads and, and pray with me? Father, we thank you for the great grace in which you've shown us at this church, that, uh, we are just normal people, normal men and women, Lord, who come before you, Lord, with issues, with struggles, with thanksgiving, with praise, excitement, and, and just our life, and, God, we ask that your presence, Lord, just your presence alone and the power of the kingdom of God would enter into our lives, Lord, that we may make sense of where you have us, what we're doing, our families, our friendships. And, Father, we may come before you. God, as we open up your scripture tonight, we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would anoint Jim, that he would preach in a way that would move and stir our affections for your son, Jesus. God, we ask that you would be honored and worshiped in all that we do, say and think, in Christ's name.
1: Amen. All right, well, uh, before we get started today, uh, my goal here is to be able to let you know that if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we're going to have people coming and and, and giving them to you now. I always forget to say that whenever I teach. And that's like the first thing a pastor should do is let people have Bibles. So if I don't do that, then I'm really failing here. So if you need one, you've got people out there who are passing them out. Well, as, uh, as Ricardo said, we're continuing in our series in Habakkuk, and I thought it would be important uh, to introduce the series by kind of sharing with you some of my life, some of the, the f- most formative, actually I think the most formative era in my life. I was 21 years old. Um, things were going really well for me I actually was an intern at a church And I was getting trained for ministry And things were, go- things were going very well I was actually making $600 a month Which was better than I had ever done before <laughs> um, There was a girl who was considering Maybe possibly dating me Which was pretty sweet um, And then, you know, life was going well and I got one of those calls. And you know the kind of calls that I'm talking about. The calls that you either have received or you know is coming. My grandpa called me. My grandpa is one of the most important men in my life. He's like the cross between, you know, an NFL linebacker and C.S. Lewis. He's like the best, big philosopher who just likes to eat meat and is real big and stuff. He showed me who Jesus is. He, he really was the one who shared the gospel with me the most. He discipled me. He was like a father to me. And on the other end of that line, he was telling me that he had cancer. And, and, and I'm, I got to tell you, it shook me, it broke me but before i could even catch my breath within the next few days i got another call that some very close family members had been involved in a murder that they themselves they over the years there was there was an older man in the neighborhood who really took advantage of them and brought them under the, his wing and and sold drugs and made them you know use them to sell drugs in the neighborhood and that my family members these These young guys, 16 years old, had killed someone. And my family was shaken. And we were broken. And my perfect little world got interrupted. You know, I was saying, God, I'm, I'm here. I'm trying to be trained for ministry. Don't you want me to do that? That seems like a good thing. But I had to move back to Denver to be with my family. To live with my grandpa in the last six months of his life and to be with my family as they went through the trial. So I packed my bags in this, in this uh, truck. I drove to Durango, that's where my mom lived, and then from there we were going to drive eight hours to Denver. We got to Durango and as if things couldn't get worse, we got another call. One of my family members was on the other end of the line saying he was going to kill himself. And pretty abruptly hung up. And for eight hours, we drove from Durango to Denver, not knowing if that person would be alive. And as we were driving, my mom, who at that time was not open to talking anything about any spiritual issue or talking about God, She looks at me and she says, look, Jim, you like to talk about God so much? Well, let's have a conversation. Why is God allowing all of this stuff to happen to our family? Why are there so many messed up things in this world? Why cancer? Why murder? Why drugs? Why do we have to drive this this road and and wonder if our family member is going to be alive when we get there? And those big why questions, I think, are very close to the why questions that Habakkuk asks in in his book. And I wish that in that moment I had the book of Habakkuk, and I had reflected on it. And really, in many ways, the sermon today is going to be what I wish I could have said to my mom in that moment. See, Habakkuk... As we saw last week when Tyler in the morning and Luke in the evening, uh, when they taught, they talked about the question that Habakkuk was asking to God. What are you going to do about the unrighteousness and the injustice among your people? And then God gives the answer. He says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and and the Babylonians are going to take them out. They're going to go into exile. That God's going to raise up this nation this brutal nation, to take out his people and to judge and to punish his people. And here we pick up in Habakkuk, uh, the end of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. I promise it's not going to be a nine-hour sermon, even though there's a lot of verses, but we're going to drill in at a few points. I want to start at Habakkuk's next question, which is in verse 12 and verse 13. So if you want to open your Bibles, we can read that. Habakkuk 1.12 and this is Habakkuk's question to God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. He's talking about Babylon there. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Essentially, Habakkuk is perplexed by how God could raise up this brutal nation like the Babylonians to be raised up against God's people in Judah. Habakkuk's original complaint was that the people in Judah were messed up. But you know what? The Babylonians were even more messed up. How could God use a people like that? Why was God going to allow injustice and suffering and those sorts of things? He's he's very confused. And then he continues in verse 14. You almost hear this emotion and this metaphor that he gives. He says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, and this is Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so that, so that he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk doesn't like God's plan and he's trying to explain it to him. Habakkuk is essentially saying, God, you make us like fish. You make the nations of the world like the fish of the sea. And if you raise up Babylon, they're going to be like merciless fishermen who who can never get enough and will keep pulling more and more fish out of the sea. And then when they, when they finish their day of fishing, they're going to go home. They're going to have a big fish fry. They're going to get drunk. And then they're going to start worshiping their fishing poles and worshiping their nets. They're going to be mocking you, God. Why are you going to allow this to happen? And God allows Habakkuk to come with his questions. God allows for us to come with our questions and our concerns. But God has an answer. In this chapter, really the the anchor verse where we're going to spend a lot of time is in Habakkuk 2.4. And it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. When it says that, he's he's talking about Babylon. And much of this chapter here, God's giving his answer to the unrighteous, to the Babylon. But then he also speaks to the righteous, and he says, but the righteous shall live by faith. And so in this text, in this, this chapter, what we see is that God gives an answer to the righteous, causing, calling them to live by faith. And he gives some words to the unrighteous, the Babylonians. Saying, your days are numbered. So let's start talking about the righteous. We'll start there. What is God's answer to the the righteous? Before we get into that, we first need to answer the question, who are the righteous and what does that word mean? You know, this week I threw out a question on Facebook just to see what connotations the word righteous and righteousness carries. And it's not always positive. You know, you don't go up to a friend and and, and when you compliment them, you don't say, hey, I think you're righteous. You know, that's kind of, it feels a little awkward. It's not a common compliment. But it's a great word in the Bible. You know, when we think of the word, we often think of it kind of like self righteous And those are two completely different concepts. We think of personal piety, or people who stick their nose up in the air, who act like they're better than you. They've got a long list of things that they won't do. You know, they don't drink, they don't dance. They only watch movies uh, that are like Veggie Tales and Left Behind. They've got a big old King James Bible, just so you know how much they know. And they carry that big Bible around. And, and, it's, and that is not righteousness. That's kind of like a self-righteousness. Where, where you're using things to look down on others and to lift yourself up. And that's co- sort of a conservative self-righteousness. But we know that, you know, there's a liberal self-righteousness as well, right? A liberal self-righteousness is when people puff themselves up because they only drink fair trade coffee fair trade coffee that was was picked by free range chickens and it and it was it was processed in in a in a in a plant that was in a building that was made of recycled recycling uh, you know containers and they use these things to look down on people that's self righteousness now those things are good i mean the the king james bible and fair trade coffee i like both of them but the self-righteousness is when, when you use it to look down on others. And so often, I think, we know what self-righteousness is, but we don't know what righteousness is. We don't know what this biblical word means, and it is a beautiful word. Within this word, it's, it's so important, within this word there is a massive vision for how God's people are to live for his glory In the sight of an onlooking world. It's an important word. The word in Hebrew is actually uh, uh, tzaddik or tzaddikim. The righteous ones is the plural. And it was very common in the the Old Testament. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It sometimes is translated as righteous or just or lawful. N.T. Wright gives a, a little definition. He says... Uh, his definition of righteousness is, the basic meaning of righteousness denotes not so much an abstract idea of justice or virtue, but as right standing and consequent behavior within the community. Righteousness has both vertical and horizontal dimensions. It, it means we're, we're right with God and we're right with others. Tyler Johnson, uh, who taught last week in the morning, um, he, he give, gave one of the simplest definitions of righteousness. I love it. He said, righteousness is essentially an outward orientation where, where the whole of our lives is pointed outward, is focused on God and is focused on others. It's where our heart is, is fixed on God and our hands are extended to our neighbor. Our eyes look up to the glory of God, and our ears are open to the needs of others. It's not self-focused and self-absorbed, but it's others-focused. The righteous person is someone who reads their Bible. It's important. But they don't do it so that they can beat you in a game of Bible bingo, but they do it because they are nourished by the Word of God. They find their satisfaction in knowing, delighting in, depending on and being desperate for God. They are people who pray, but they pray not as people who come to God as a divine Santa Claus, but who come to God as a generous father who does give give good gifts, but the greatest gift that the father gives is himself. These are people who see every beautiful thing as flowing from the beauty and the holiness of God. The righteous are people who make a very big deal about God, but don't make a very big deal about themselves. Righteousness also has a strong social dimension. As Tim Keller says, he says, biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it's about relationships. When most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think in terms of private morality such as sexual chastity or diligence and prayer and Bible study. But in, in, in the Bible, righteousness refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. The righteous see themselves as a part of a community. And when they come together and when they gather with God's people, they don't look around and, and, and see people as a con- with the eyes of a consumer. They don't choose their friendships the way we choose a brand of cereal in the store. Rather, instead of seeing what they could get from people, they look for how they can be a servant. They're looking at people as image bearers of God who have much to contribute. These are people who... Uh, who are compelled by love, who are servants, who are spiritual siblings within the community. The righteous are people of generosity. They look at their time, their treasure, and their talent as instruments and tools that can be effectively wielded for the good of others. These are people like my friend Roy, my friend Roy, who he goes to the gateway, uh, redemption gateway. He's my oldest friend, and he's like Jesus. He's a servant. This guy, when he went went to go buy a new car, and, you know, you and I, we don't like to help people move. When someone's moving, we kind of avoid them for a few weeks so that they don't ask us to help move. He looks for people to help them move. And when he went to buy a car, he decided he was going to buy a truck so he could be more effective in helping people move. That's a snapshot of righteousness. Um, The righteous are people who see the brokenness in the world and actually care. They resist the apathy that presses in upon us, longing for God's justice to touch every square inch of the world. Instead of daydreams of personal grandeur and, and, you know, thinking about get-rich-quick schemes or how they could actually, if they worked out a little more, they could make it to the NBA or something like that. These are the people who plot and devise and scheme creative ways to love others. They are people of peace instead of violence, who do take sin seriously, but they bend towards forgiveness. They speak life-giving words, not words of slander or self-promotion, but words of truth that are drenched in love. This is the biblical vision of righteousness. It's a vision, not just for individuals, but for a community. God called Israel to be righteous because he himself is righteous and is on a mission to reveal himself to the world. Now, can you imagine the impact of a whole nation with Israel or even a whole church with us? If we took this vision of righteousness seriously, well, actually, Proverbs describes what that's like. Proverbs 11.10 says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Another other translations say, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And, and why does the city rejoice when the righteous prosper? Why, why would the city throw a party when the righteous are the ones who get a raise or who go into office or who make a lot of money or who, you know, who are healthy? Because they know that The righteous are the ones who, when they flourish, they don't hoard their flourishing, but they pour it out to others. And when the righteous prosper, the city is going to prosper. The city is going to rejoice. When they get promoted in the workplace, then that business will be filled with more integrity, better products, and fair business practices. When the righteous are healthy, when, you know, they do some juicing in the morning or something like that. And they've got a lot of energy. They use that energy to serve others and to seek the welfare of the city. <clears throat> when the righteous get into power, like, like entering into political office, then the city will benefit from just and fair policies. When they get a raise, these are people who actually pay their bills. And then they invest in the betterment of the community this is a beautiful vision. And we should be captivated by this vision. It should take our imagination somewhere. But there's a problem. And here's what the problem is. The righteous don't always prosper. They don't always flourish. Instead of getting promoted, sometimes they get fired. Instead of having influence, sometimes they are ignored. And sometimes... It's the unrighteous who actually come out on top. And, and when, they, when they prosper, they wreak havoc on the city. Instead of flourishing, they bring destruction. When they enter into political office, they, they drain the economy because they are drunk on special interests. They hoard and hide valuable resources that could be used for good. They're violent, they're greedy, they're oppressive, and they are self-absorbed. Rather than being caught up in the great and beautiful love of God, the self-giving love of God, they're caught up in themselves. And this brings us to the crux of Habakkuk's complaint. He's perplexed as to why God would allow the Babylonians to prosper and to even to, to prosper over God's people, Judah. Habakkuk knows that his people aren't doing that great right now. But they're at least better than the Babylonians. They're at least more righteous than the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk asked God, how could you allow for such suffering in the world? How can an evil regime come to reign? And what are we supposed to do in the midst of this? And that's where we find God's answer in Habakkuk 2.4. He says that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, it's easy for us to hear that and say, well, that seems, that seems kind of trite. You know, that seems kind of like a, a bumper sticker encouragement. The righteous shall live by faith. And it's not. The reason why we think it is, is because we kind of say stuff like that when, you know, when trouble comes. We say, you know, keep the faith, buddy. And, you know, it doesn't really help, and, you know, it's a trite little statement. Or we say, you know, there's a silver lining in every cloud. But when things are really messed up, that little phrase doesn't do much. That's not what God's doing here. He's not giving a little bumper sticker thing. There's a broader context in the story of Israel. God is calling them to live by faith in the midst of a messed up world. And, and in, the, in this, he's, he's, their, their faith is to believe that God will eventually make things right, even when the world doesn't seem right. It's to believe that God is going to weave these ugly circumstances into something completely different, and that his good purposes will prevail even when there seems no hope. And it's not a blind faith. But a faith that's rooted in the story of Israel. How time after time, with Moses and Joseph and Abraham and David, that God came and rescued. He took ridiculous, ugly circumstances and flipped them on their head in ways that God got the glory and people were drawn to him and, and experienced his good and his love. Read the book, uh, or read the chapter of Hebrews 11. Uh, When you get some time, it really goes into that in depth. God calls the righteous to respond to perplexing circumstances and to live by faith, looking at who God has revealed himself to be. And they had a great story, and they had a great history with God, showing his faithfulness over and over again, that he's trustworthy. But we have a unique advantage as the church Because they were 600 years before the cross. But we are 2,000 years after the cross. We, Habakkuk and his community, were looking forward to something that God would do. But we look back at something that God has done to encounter and to oppose evil in the world. The cross. The cross is when God steps up to the evil in the world and wins. In the cross, we can take comfort in a God who entered into our suffering and our pain. He experienced the messed up and painful world that we experience. He relates to our pain. You know, when, a, when the Roman fist, the fist of the Roman soldier pounded the face of our sa- Savior, swelling his eyes shut, Jesus entered into the pain of every woman who's been hit by her husband and has to hide a black eye with sunglasses and has to hide her fear with a fake smile. Jesus entered into the pain of the harsh and hateful words that we so often experience in this world on the cross. As he hung up there naked, pedestrians walked by and they mocked him. They, they said nasty things about him. They found entertainment in his muscle spasm and in the anguish of his pain. He entered into our pain through his pain. And God may not fully give us all of the answers that we want here in this life. We, he may not reveal his plans behind the pain, but, and he, but he does enter into our experience, enter into our pain. He may not give us answers, but on the cross... God gives us himself. And we know that this is a trustworthy God. That we can look to the God of the cross, even in the dark night of the soul, because we know that the the light of the world comes and sits with us, even in the darkness. And what we find in Jesus is the answer to the other problem with righteousness. Righteousness. You know, the first problem was that the righteous don't always prosper. Sometimes we suffer. The second problem is this. Who the heck is actually righteous? Right? Are you? Am I? Can we really live up to that that big vision of righteousness? Can we perfectly embody righteousness? No, we can't. I mean, Hebrews 3, 10, and 11 says that no, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. We know that from the Bible and we know it experientially that at our core, we are not perfectly righteous. You see, Israel was supposed to be this righteous nation, but they kept failing time and time again. And every time they failed, God would send more and more of them into exile. And the the community kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it got very small. God promised that there would always be a remnant of faithful Israel that kept the covenant with him. But eventually that community got so small that there was only one person left standing. Only one person who was truly righteous, who truly kept the the covenant. And that person is Jesus. He's the only one in Israel who is the, the perfect humanity who kept the law, Who was truly righteous. Because in him is, is the divine righteousness. The apostle Paul actually understands the gospel as he looks back at Habakkuk and quotes it in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3.11 it says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he quotes Habakkuk, he says, for the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's looking back and saying, the only righteous one is Jesus. There's no one who keeps the law. No one who's truly righteous but him. And through faith in him, allegiance to him, divine righteousness is given to us. The perfect righteousness of Christ given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, what Jesus did was he took on our unrighteousness. And he gave us his righteousness. The righteousness of God. And this passage says that, We are made righteous in union with Christ. And as we are bound to him, we can actually take this vision seriously about being the righteous who make the city rejoice because we have the righteousness of Christ before God and we're constantly being made into the image of Christ as we renew our mind and we become more and more like him. And so we can pour ourselves out for the good of the city to really be this righteous community that shows who the righteous God is. But we know that we won't always come out on top. Sometimes we might actually suffer. And in those moments, we can cling to God. We can continue to love him and bless others and cling to him, the one who entered into our suffering and suffered to deliver us from evil. That's God's word to the righteous, that the righteous shall live by faith. But now God turns to the unrighteous, and he has some words for them. In Habakkuk 2, 6-16, uh, through 16, God has some very powerful and pointed words of confrontation with Babylon. This, this nation that is filled with injustice. And, and in this section... God uh, addresses them with some serious boldness. God gives five woes. There's sort of these, in the Bible, a, a woe is, is when um, it's essentially a declaration of wrong and a pronouncement of judgment. Basically, if you are doing stuff that's so messed up that even God says, whoa, you know you got something coming your way, right? And that's what this is all about. God's response to Babylon, his response to the unrighteous, is that your days are numbered. And he says it in about five different ways. Number one, God condemns Babylon for their excessive greed and economic oppression. In this section, God points out how the Babylonians used wealth in a greedy, sinful, and harmful way. The righteous used their wealth for flourishing, but the unrighteous use their wealth for selfish gain that, that decimates communities. And when you look at Habakkuk 2.6, it says, Woe to him who re- heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Babylon was this brutal empire with military might that plundered whole communities. They would steal their most valuable resources, injure people, attack people, kill people, destroy the infrastructure of cities, and even harm the physical earth around. And, and essentially what God is saying in this passage is, Babylon, your wealth, the wealth that you have, It belongs to these other nations, and you've stolen it from them. And that God is the divine debt collector who will allow the other nations to eventually take Babylon out. This unjust nation may thrive for a little while, but its days are numbered. And then we see in Habakkuk 2, 9, there's another woe. And these first two woes, I think, are are fairly connected. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. And the image that we see here is, it, he says that Babylon's kind of like a bird that steals a few things for its nest and then flies way up high to where you can't get to it. And what Babylon was doing is they were, they were crushing these, these nations, these communities that were far away and taking their resources off to, to their land. And building big houses and, and, and growing in wealth off the pain and off the, the labor and the backs of people who are far away. Now the Bible is clear that wealth and profit are not inherently bad things. They're actually probably good things. But when they come from injustice and they come from the pain of someone else's back that you're forcing into this... God gets pretty upset. And, you know, this could be likened to a company that gets rich because they rely on sweatshops or slave labor in a distant land. They don't want to see that nastiness in their area, so they export it really far away. It's sort of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality that the Babylonians had. And they think that nobody sees what they're doing, but God sees. And in verse 11... It basically says the building materials that you stole from these nations to use to build your extravagant houses, they're going to cry out against you and witness against you. This unjust nation of Babylon will thrive for a little while, but their days are numbered. Number two is that God condemns Babylon for their culture of violence and shame. Habakkuk 2.12 says, Woe to him who builds a house with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people merely labor for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And again, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. God's condemning them for their culture of violence and shame. He's calling out a society where the city functions on an economy based on sin. Their towns are filled with jobs that rob people of dignity, where violence and shameful acts are a part of the normal economic and entertainment life. This is a place where it's hard to make a living without somehow contributing to degrading industries. You might think of, of a town in Southeast Asia somewhere where the economy is based on the revenue of, of sex trafficking and sex slavery. Or, you know, where place, p- places where women have to make decisions about whether they're going to enter into prostitution or feed their children. But we might also think about the entertainment industry in America, where we essentially fund sex trafficking with the amount of pornography that people are watching and and giving revenue to. You know, we have whole celebrity gossip magazines and TV shows that make millions and millions of dollars because they know that we are hungry to mock and to hear about the, the, the struggles and the failures of someone like Lindsay Lohan. God describes the actions of Babylon with a metaphor of, of them they're, they're, they're getting people drunk so that they can gaze at their, their nakedness. And he says that that's what Babylon is doing to the nations, shaming them and robbing them of their dignity. And God's response to that is that God has a cup for them. It's the cup of his wrath. And that this unjust nation may thrive for a while, but its days are numbered. And number three, God condemns Babylon for their environmental degradation and how it harms their neighbors. Habakkuk 2.17 says, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth and to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, I'm not about to go Al Gore on you. I'm not, I don't have like a ladder or anything like that. Um, but this passage is, is talking about environmental degradation. What, what they're talking about with the violence done to Lebanon, Lebanon was known for its lush trees and its, its strong cedar wood. And it had these beautiful trees and these beautiful forests. And Babylon would come through needing to feed their excess in in, in Babylon even more. And they would cut down all the trees and take out that good cedar wood. And then they'd go hunt through the forest and they'd kill all the animals. This passage isn't saying that cutting down a tree and using wood is wrong. No, that's a good thing. And it's not saying that hunting is wrong. What it's saying is, it's the opposite actually, that what you're doing is you're coming and destroying the renewable resources in an environment and people suffer because of it. Because the nations that they were taking these trees from and, 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 and taking these animals from, they need something to build their houses with. They need food to eat. And their environment was destroyed because of what the Babylonians did, as they fed their excess. Now we got to be clear here. This is not saying that an animal like a river is on par with a human and is just as important. But rivers are important because people drink from rivers. If you're going to take, if you're going to take seriously the call to love your neighbor, you got to care about rivers. And furthermore. We're given a stewardship of the Earth and a, and a call to truly love our neighbor. And Babylon didn't. They didn't consider their neighbor. They stole from their neighbor and destroyed the environment around their homes. And number four: God condemns Babylon for their idolatry. Habakkuk 2:18 through20 says, "What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God concludes his woes against Babylon by calling them out for their idolatry. Idolatry is when we take anything, even good things, and put them in the central place where God belongs. When we take good things and make them ultimate things. When we orient our life around anything other than God as that central piece. And what Babylon did is they made these little statues, and they attributed divinity to them, and they worshipped these little statues. And we don't do that. But we often put other things in the center of our life, like, like wealth or power or comfort or pleasure. When we make these the central aim of our lives, we are essentially creating idols. And I believe that God concludes this section on, on the woes against Babylon with idolatry because it's the worst of their sins, because it's the fountain, fountain from which all of their injustice flows. Now, you might be saying, you know, it's not a big deal if someone carves and and worships a little statue. Just let them do their thing. It's a little weird. It's a little silly. But, you know, let them believe what they believe. It's not hurting anybody, right? Well, that's wrong. The logic of this passage is saying when you make an idol, when you carve an idol, an idol can't, when you make this little statue, that idol can't really do anything. It's not really a god. It doesn't have a voice. It can't teach you anything. It can't do anything for you. Essentially, what you're doing is you're putting it there, this thing created in your own image that you give power to. Essentially, with idolatry, we're worshiping ourselves Rather than being righteous where we're outward focused, we're unrighteous, and we're, 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 we worship idols, we turn inward on ourselves we focus only on ourselves we worship ourselves and when the world begins to look inward and to collapse in within itself to become self-centered and self-focused rather than outward focused that's when injustice is rampant because if money is your god you will run over anybody in order to get some money if, if pleasure is your god then it doesn't matter that the person on the other side of the screen, when you're looking at pornography, is someone created in God's image, a child of God, and someone else's daughter. You, you don't, that doesn't matter, because if your God is pleasure, then you will easily use the person on that screen. When, when power is your God, then it's easy for you to step on anyone's head and climb the top of the ladder just so that you can get to the top, no matter what it causes to other people. You will lie, steal, cheat, and and pour out injustice and create injustice. That's the result of idolatry. And we know that we live in a world that is just wrecked by injustice, by broken and sad things. You turn on the news, and it'll break your heart. And so much of that is a result of a world where we've turned inward, self-centered, self-focused, self-worshippers. And it's all over. And so where do we look? In times like this, and in times like Habakkuk had, when everything seems out of order, it's messed up, there's injustice in the world, the unrighteous are the ones who prosper. Where do you look? And I'm going to conclude by just giving us four places to look. You look inward, you look backward to the cross, you look forward, and ultimately you look upward. First, we'll start with inward. Look inward to yourself reflect repent ask questions are you a part of the problem so often it's easy to go around the world pointing out all of the wrong things that other people are doing but we rarely look in the mirror at ourselves you think the nazis sat around and said hey we're nazis right no they justified their stuff with with um they had these purposes that they thought that they were doing you know, when you watch a movie, when you watch like Star Wars, you don't relate to Darth Vader. You don't say, "Oh yeah, I'm kind of like him." Actually, I, I got to stop for a second. I've been using this analogy all day, and then like at the end of the earlier services, I had like three or four people come up to me and say, um, "Excuse me, I want to correct you about Star Wars. It's really the Emperor who's the bad guy, and not not Darth Vader." And I only saw one of the movies. The point is, you don't watch movies and and look at the bad guy and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of like me. I relate to that guy. No, we assume that we are the good guys in the world. You don't watch a documentary about about Hitler and, and say, yeah, I have a few things I can learn from that guy. And the same thing goes with this passage. When you open up this passage, the chances are you don't look at Babylon And say, those are words from me. You assume that you're the good guy in the story. But oftentimes we ourselves are self-focused and self-centered. And therefore participate in the injustices and unrighteousness in the world. So it's important to look inward and to ask ourselves, are we a part of the problem? Are we so dependent on comfort or hungry for power or focused on pleasure that we dishonor God and damage others. We must honestly look at ourselves in the mirror. Number two is we look backward. As I alluded to before, we look back to the cross. Yes, it's true that our, our sin and our unrighteousness may crush others. And it will ultimately end up crushing ourselves. But the good news is that Jesus was crushed for us. He stood in the way. He was crushed for us. And on the cross, we find someone who makes us righteous, who atones for our sins, and who defeats evil in the world. And while we wait for God to restore this world, we know that God does not give us every answer we're looking for, but he does give us himself. And he gave gave us himself on the cross. And then we look forward. One of the most important passages in this text comes from Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Israelites, they, they knew that God's glory and his presence was contained to the temple and the tabernacle, and that's where you would go to experience the glory of God. But what this passage is saying is one day the whole earth will be like God's temple, and everyone will know that it's like God's temple and that his glory will push away the shame that the Babylonians and the nations had spread everywhere, that there will be healing, that things will be made right, evil will be unmade, righteousness will prevail, healing will happen, and tears will be wiped away when Jesus returns and restores all things. The glory of the Lord will one day fill the earth as the waters cover cover the sea and drown away all the evil stuff. And in the meantime, we get to be conduits of spreading his glory to the places where it's not yet by speaking the good news and, and, and working for the good of others and fighting injustice. And finally, um, number the, the final thing is we get to look upward. Up, in the, the text, the chapter 2 finishes in, in verse 20. It says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in this, we find an invitation an invitation to come before God and to give our questions, but ultimately also to stop and pause and realize that he's God and we are not. He understands what's going on in the world and we always don't. I've got a, a good friend who's had to take his two year old daughter to the hospital and to the doctors a number of times recently because she's had some infections. And this sweet two-year-old little girl has had to have shots, stitches. She's had to have little incisions and cuts without anesthesia. And it's been incredibly painful for her and even more painful for her parents. But they're doing it for her good. And when she looks to her parents with her, her big, cute eyes and asks why they're doing this. How can, how can their adult in any adequate way explain the nature of an infection to a two-year-old? And we are often like those two-year-olds. God could ex- try to explain everything to us, but he is holier and higher than us. And we don't understand his ways. We don't understand his ways, but we know that he's a loving father who is out for our good, who entered into our pain and into our suffering, and who is God, who will make things right. I started today off by telling you about that drive from Durango to Denver. And we arrived in Denver, my mom and I, and we talked about a lot of things. And we got there, and my family member, and we had prayed. They they didn't commit suicide. My grandpa did die about six months later. But I got to sit with that man and walk with that man through the last days of his life and watch him step into the presence of Jesus. I got, it was painful for me. It was hard for me. I didn't know many people in that, in that era. And I had to walk around the, the streets of Denver when it was cold, and sometimes in the middle of the night when his catheter would come out and we'd have to rush to the hospital. And it was painful and it was hard. And I don't, I don't stand here today being able to fully explain what that season was about. But I do know this. Jesus was there. He was with me. He was shaping me. And it was the most impactful time of my life. My mom, at the end of that ride, you know, within a few days, ended up coming to know Jesus. And believe it or not, about four months later, I met Jenny and um, my wife, uh, and, then, and we were eventually able to get married. And I'll tell you this, I don't think the 21-year-old version of myself was, would have made a very good husband, having not gone through that. And frankly, I think God loved my wife so much That he wouldn't let this irresponsible knucklehead uh, not go through some serious trials before I could be a good husband. And each day that I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, those sorts of things. So much of, if there's anything good coming out of me, it kind of came so much from that era. Is that God doesn't always give us the answers we want, but his purposes are good and he gives us himself. Let's pray.